the Crude Audacity Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. You are listening to the Crude Audacity Podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. I'm Catherine Mills, and you are tuned in to our 710 Oil Field News segment. This is the segment where we address all current events currently affecting the patch. So, as everyone knows from the nightly news and daily posts to pump route chats and bordering discussions, the world needs a pivot. We need a strategy. We need a life after lockdown. However, we are no longer playing the same game. And while we have addressed mental health and work-life integration, we now need a business plan. We need a strategy and we need unfiltered, unbiased data. So, all of that addressed. Today, I am joined by James Constas of Prison Group. He is the president and co-founder, and we will be addressing lookbacks and leverage, how to move forward and do so strategically. James, how are you doing today? Hey, Catherine. I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you so much for joining. I'm thrilled for this discussion. I feel like we've had a lot of people, uh, you know, throwing this question around, we're seeing it from all angles, we're seeing it from all political viewpoints, and nobody really knows what the future is holding because we've never been here before. So uh, before we jump all into it, how did you get started in marketing? How did you get started in the oil field? And I know you've expanded to all other industries, so can you give us a rundown? Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing my Rockies hat today because I am a baseball fan, and um, I do miss it. So I, I, I kind of feel, you know, life after lockdown, that is definitely one thing I'd like to see come back would be a little bit of Major League Baseball. Uh, right. We can get it. So I'm just p- putting that plug out there in case the commissioner is watching. Um, we will we will watch it and we will watch it all day and all night if you put it out there. So uh, just want to say that, but, um, yeah, so, so, um, interesting. I didn't come from a oil state, like, like a lot of people in the business. I, I came from Arizona, so I'm wearing my Arizona state, um, you know, logo t-shirt today. And, and, uh, when I, um, when I did my, when I graduated with a degree in international management, uh, I did my case study on Exxon. And I just thought that the oil business was the greatest business in the world. And I had to be a part of it. And so I considered myself really lucky that right after college, I went to work for a big oil company and spent uh, many years in the oil patch and learned the business from from the ground up at, at, uh, at you know, at an EMP company or two. And uh, that led to other things. And all of a sudden, boom, you know, we, we got into investor relations and marketing. So, um, yeah, that's my life story. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. So what does Prison Group do? How long have y'all been around? What's the skinny on that? Yeah, so uh, about three and a half years ago, we just decided to um, to start Prism Group because we wanted to focus on uh, marketing communications and bringing digital marketing solutions to the energy tech sector and um, really, really try to also bring more technology-based solutions to our investor relations clients. And 
Uh, since then, we've grown. You know, we started with with a couple of people, me and me and um, Eric Carlgren, and and since then we've grown and uh, uh, we uh, we continue to uh, to hold our own in this market. So it's been it's been really fascinating. You know how things have evolved. But as I mean, three and a half years ago, digital marketing was still very much um, new in in the energy space, and, and now it's something that I think a lot more people have accepted. They've adopted it. You start to see. Um, Oil and gas companies, you know, make digital marketing a core part of their strategy. So that's really where we sit. And yeah, we work with more than just oil and gas companies, but that's that's my background. I can't escape it. I don't want to. And 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 so we'll always have energy as a as a core market uh, that we focus on. Well, you know that I say energy is the foundation of all other markets. No matter which way you slice it, you cannot get away from oil and gas and what we provide to the public and, you know, to the global uh, economy as a whole. So being a business owner and, you know, we were hit by two black swans globally or one major black swan in the oil field was hit with two. It seems like overnight that has flown out the window, but we are still looking for a return. We're still looking to get back to business in a normal capacity. So being a business owner, what are you seeing? What's standing out to you? Let's start broad and start whittling down. Sure. Yeah, it's I mean, that's a big topic. So, you know, we I may just have to ramble on for 10 minutes straight here, Catherine. But you open the door. Um but at, at any rate, yeah. So as a, as a business owner, I, you know, and I talk to other other business owners, including you know a lot of our client CEOs and and heads of marketing and sales. And I think we're all eager to get back to um, we're eager to get back to work, and we're starting to see that. You know, and, and fortunately, most oil and gas producers and and associated service companies are are essential businesses anyway. So they were they were already open. You know, just driving up through Weld County, north of of Colorado. You know, water. Water hauler trucks are moving. Um, you know, there's there's uh, there's rigs that are drilling. There's only six rigs drilling in, in Colorado right now, which is down from 31 a year ago. So so well, there's <laughs> so that, I mean that's a dramatic reduction in in oil field activity that we've seen. Uh, but I think we all want to get back to normal. But we still got a lot of time between here and there. You know, I was. I was looking at some predictions of oil prices and they're saying, you know, uh, a couple of analysts from, uh, I think, I think it was JP Morgan or, or, or and, and others are saying, you know, if you, if, if we want to see oil back around 50 bucks, uh, West Texas intermediate, we're going to have to wait till the second half of next year. That's 12 months from now. <laughs> That's 12 months. And there's a lot of time and there's, and we've got close to, you know, 40 million people unemployed right now. So there's a lot of uncertainty between here and there. And so, you know, what do we look for? Well, I think the most important thing that we have to look for, if, if you look at some of the economic uh, forecasters like Economic Cycle Research Institute um, and others, is that you got to look at the employment numbers. You know, you, you got to look at are people going back to work? Are they, are they, do they have incomes that they can spend is, you know, we're still a consumer driven economy. And right now we're looking at unemployment at, at around 26%. So we went from first to worst in two months as of the result of you know, travel restrictions, stay in place orders and other reactions to, uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think it's a combination of what milepost are we going to look for? 
We're going to look for improving um, employment statistics. We need to look for um, continued reopening of the economy in places where it's still pretty much shut down. Um, and and basically, um, you know, hope hope for the best. Uh, it's it's tough, but there's still a lot of business going on. Um, it's short skeleton crews, but it is happening, and it's happening more in boardrooms than the field right now. I think there was uh, like in 30 days of just stopping drilling operations, not just not even shut-ins. Uh, you know, significant yeah. percentage decreases in daily production across just you know the Permian itself. So take all of that and multiply it across all of our major oil basins. Uh, it's been quite shocking. But one of the things that we do well in this industry is we understand that all models are wrong and some are useful. So from your perspective on all market analytics right now and what and how we are seeing in the nightly news, you know, is this something we can look back on and say the way we present data is questionable and the way the public consumes data is more questionable and that is you know that affects several topics across the oil industry but in a global economy and the markets as a whole what are you seeing from that what's happening from covid yeah um man that's it's it's it, that's a controversial subject but i think what isn't controversial or maybe it is for some i don't know but uh the original the models that were used to justify a lot of the the policy response you know stay stay in place orders um travel restrictions and so forth. Um, a lot of those models have turned out to be um, it, wildly inaccurate. And, and I, and it's I, normal. that is a very normal thing. And, and, and that is true. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a recovering financial analyst myself. Um, and, and I built pretty much a career based on, on economic and financial modeling. And, and we, we, even though we're marketing, we, we always apply, we try to apply, um, financial modeling and economic modeling when we can, especially to highlight a company's value proposition to another client, you know, and that, that's how we help them decide um, how they're going to approach the market, how they're going to approach clients. And so, um, you know, but, but taking, so I have some views on modeling that, that uh, as a practitioner that, you know, might be different from that of a policymaker. So when we think about, you know, the early, uh, the early models on, on COVID-19, at least here in um, Colorado, you know, we were being um, we were being told that something like uh, if we had 60 percent social distancing, that we would see something like uh, 13,000 plus um, deaths. Now, I want to. So if you're a modeler, you have to put out your assumptions, right? You have to put out your uncertainties. <laughs> and, well, so here's the key. Here, here's a caveat. We're not done with COVID-19. No. So um, every single pandemic we've had, uh, including this pandemic, we've had four in the past 100 years. Uh, we had we had one in 1918, obviously, you know, the famous um, um, Spanish flu, which didn't come from Spain. Um, Did it come <laughs> from like Kansas or something? No, no it, it came from Asia. It came from China. Oh, did it? I didn't realize that. And, and now I'm not an epidemiologist, so so you know somebody, somebody may be, may need to correct me in the comments below. But but I'll say that but I, I, it it did was it was first noticed from troops returning from um, from Spain from World War One, and so you know people suspect that that's how it got to the U.S. But we also had a 1968 pandemic. We had 
only 10 years ago, we had the H1N1 pandemic. Um, that was although, as quickly as it started, though. You know, it, in, in each one of these, if, if memory serves, I know at least the Spanish flu pandemic and, and the most recent one, then the H1N1 of, of 2009, um, both of those had a second wave. So we should expect a second wave um, no matter what in the fall. And, and here's, here's an interesting fact that, that I did not know um, about the, the H1N1 pandemic, which was um, it's, that virus is still out there. Yeah, it and it shows it up. Go away. It shows up every fall with seasonal flu, and it's just that we, as 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 a humanity, we've now developed herd immunity to it, and and we have vaccines for it. So if we see it coming, then you know the the health the health professionals know which vaccine, or they make their best guess that we might need it and so forth. But but that's what makes this one so. Um, I think what made it so worrisome for policymakers, which was. You know, we've never seen it before. No one has any kind of immunity to it. We don't know what to expect. And then they, are, they, they, they put these models together that were based on assumptions where, um, you know, it's with modeling anything, with, you know, whether you're modeling an investment portfolio or, or uh, you know, value proposition or a strategic plan, whatever, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? Always. That's always the case. And, and I know that's kind of a cliche, but... But it, but it is true. So do you really have good inputs into those models if you've only had four previous pandemics to look at? You know, and, and what's interesting is that this one, um, this latest COVID-19 pandemic, for example, what we're finding is that, at least in Colorado, where we have data, is that 75% of mortality is coming from people above the age of 80. Yes. Or, or 70, excuse me, 70, you know, so if we, but 54% is above the age of 80. So we know we, that that's, and that's different than the H1N1 pandemic where the CDC estimates that 65% of the people who were infected were young or in their thirties and, and below. So how do you know, uh, you know, this is, is past prologue. Can you use past data to, to, to use as, as credible assumptions into your model? Um, when you only have four pandemics to look at, uh, it, it makes it tough. And, and I, I, don't, um, I don't envy the people who, who try to make sense of all that data and epidemiologists who try to put models together. But, you know, we were, we were told back in March that we would see more than 13,000 deaths here in Colorado. And so far, we, I think we're at 1,185, yeah. if you look at the Colorado Department of Health and Environment's website. So... You know, that's a big difference. Now, remember my caveat, we're not through this yet. So, so we, we will see more cases. We will see more um, mortality, unfortunately, here in Colorado. But uh, it's, it's, it's really hard to imagine that we would ever see what the models originally estimated. So, Well, it's interesting you say that because you're right. We are not through it yet. And I think everyone understands the need to be respectful. But from a business side and you being a business owner and a market analyst, looking at all of this, was it the right response? Was the shutdown really as useful? I mean, this and again, we are not nightly news. We are not telling a story. We should be looking at data and building the story because the story is still building to your point. So. 
from your perspective, what we're seeing, I mean, half of Golden shut down and then, you know, last week it's like snap over and everything is somewhat socially distanced, but it is opening back up, not because anybody necessarily wants to. I think there are people who are still scared, but we have to. So what's the response right and what are your thoughts on it? You know, um, again, so um, being a modeler, I'm going to put the caveat out there, you know, that you that you know, just emphasize what you put out there is that we're not through with this yet and we won't know until much later. I, I, I think everybody obviously is going to be studying this for years to come. So we, we really don't know exactly if it was the right response or not. But but today, you know, June 3rd, 2020, um, it does appear that the one size fits all policy to lock down the entire economy um, was probably an overreaction. Uh, we're seeing other states where they did not take this approach. Now, again, more time will give us more data to, to test our assumptions and, and will give us the final result. But um, I think I think this, you know, when you think about a pandemic, either, it's a multidimensional problem, right? I mean, you've got you've got human lives at stake. You know, you, you people, um, you know, the, the, you have to deal with mortality. You have economic issues. You have second and third order political and social issues. You know, if this goes on forever, you know, we just printed tr two trillion dollars of, of you know, imaginary money. We put that into the economy uh, for good reason, because it was because of the result of government policy that that we went from first to worst. But now. You know, was it warranted? And so as a policymaker, you really have to take in all of these inputs. As a business owner, you know, it, it, the anxiety is that the cure is worse than the disease. And I, and I know that that's a phrase. Um, it's a controversial phrase. And, and I know a lot of people take exception with it. But I think, you know, if, if the intent behind that, behind that phrase is not that, oh, we shouldn't do anything or we shouldn't have any sort of public policy when it comes to, to, to the, to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's let's look at what the right policy should be. And yeah, so I agree with that. Yeah. Reevaluate policy again, look backs for leverage. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, what, what is the right policy? Well, I think today, if you look at, the, let's look at the data. So we're talking about modeling and information and data. So if we know that, that the majority or the at-risk population are people 70 and above, we need policies to protect and sequester that group. That's the high-risk group. Mm -hmm. The other folks need to be able to, following you know, appropriate CDC guidelines and, and following um, common sense you know, practices, and if they feel comfortable getting back into the workforce, we need to start reopening. Now, I know we're doing that, but I think there's that there's a lot of people who just they don't trust business owners to do the right thing. And I think we can. I, th I, think, I think so. Yeah. I mean, in times of downturn to what we were discussing prior, for those that don't know, we didn't know if we could go live because I had a major power outage. But <laughs> as you and I were discussing, you know, in times of the Great Depression, nobody had time or honestly the money to sit back and say, How's my mental health? How is my work-life balance? Everyone was so poor that they had to stay busy and they had to work together and trust each other to work together. So, yeah. You know. So here's 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 the problem with the one-size-fits-all policy, though, is that 
we have a lot of businesses that will never reopen. You know, yeah. uh, really you know, bad. my my wife works part time at a at a at a small shop, and you know, they just opened uh, a couple weeks ago uh, when Douglas County down here opened up, and you know, there's there's restaurants and stuff in in the, in the same little shopping area. They're done. They're not coming back. And the people who started those businesses invested their life savings, their 401ks, and they're not going to be made whole by any government policy, nope. you know? And so would it, be, would it have been better for people who, if they're following guidelines and they were willing to take their, they were really ready to assess their own risk and have the freedom to make their own choices, would, would those businesses still be around? I think arguably, yeah, many of them would be, and some of them would not be. It's hard to, it's hard to make that that claim, but um, you know, as far as the cure being worse than the, the disease, staying closed means more people are losing their life savings, more people are losing their livelihoods. Uh, these are going to create dependencies. This creates anxiety. This creates mental health problems. Um, this creates. It, we don't know what kind of social problems this is going to create or political unrest that might create down the road. So. It's going to be, um, we don't know, let's put it that way. But right now I'd say sitting here at June 3rd, it looks like an overreaction. I would say sitting at June 3rd, I think you're right. And the uh, it being an election year, you know, my favorite, I do love arguing with just about anybody over politics. Um, but I, I think it's all very interesting timing with all of the events that we have happening and, you know, it seems I, I see more memes on social media. Everyone's primary form of communication these days is yeah. 2020 is done. We played Jumanji. We opened Pandora's box. Covered <laughs> the cave they found uh, last week. Some scientists found a cave with 300 uh, unique organisms in it. And people were screaming for him to close it back up. We don't know what's in there. So, you know. I'd say that's what's come out of the events thus far are the truths are it doesn't matter what news channel or outlet you use. You cannot trust anybody with an agenda and a story. And that is the Daily Post and the Nightly News. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. There are claims of a V-shaped return, which is almost like an ideal gas. You know, it exists in the lab, but does it exist in reality? And People are now so fed up with 2020 that they're not even looking at Q3 and Q4. They're waiting for Q2 of 2021. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I think these are all very dangerous circumstances for us that people are not using the look backs for leverage. We're skipping the, uh, the fix. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you're, you brought up a really good point, Catherine. And, and um, you know, I mean, we, it, it, you know, what, what do they always say about opinions? Everyone's got one, right? So, um, There's a second part to that, but we can't say it. <laughs> right. So, so, so with that, with that in mind, you know, and, and I appreciate your comment on, you know, people, you, you can't necessarily trust news with, from people or outlets with, with an agenda. And, and I think, you know, when we, when we look at our marketing practice and we look at how we help clients with their communications, you know, at the center of everything really is, is it's really simple and it sounds kind of corny, but but it's true. And that's just be honest. You know, I mean, just you know, put the have your facts, be true to yourself and be honest about the problems you can solve. And people will love you for that. And and so 
it, it, right now, I think it's difficult for for people if they just watch, you know, in this age of polarized political polarization, it's really hard to want to watch more than one outlet and get your news from more than one source. But you know, I'll watch one one outlet to, uh, to to understand what the right wants me to understand. I'll watch another to 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 understand what the left wants me to believe. And then I'll look at a few outside the U.S. to see how Asia and Europe might to be looking at us, and then try to take all that based on my own experience and, and, and come up with something that I think is probably closer to the truth than if I just looked at one outlet. You know. Are you noticing any stats that you're kind of coming down to for the return of business and that V-shaped recovery, or the claim or hope of a V-shaped recovery? Yeah, I think anyone who says that we're going to have a V-shaped recovery. I mean, let's put it this way. How accurate is the weatherman? I don't know. I need that job. You can't get fired in that job. You know, who's ever made a, a, a here's the one that's closer to home. Who's ever made a lot of money accurately predi predicting oil prices? You know, you might get lucky once in a while, but at the end of the day, you know, everyone knows that it's a, it's a fool's errand. It really is. And, and yeah. as, someone who's, as someone who's tried to model that, you know, it just, it just, just forget it. Hands up. I quit. I give up. We'll just focus on what we know and do it and do it well. But, um, you know, the V-shaped recovery, I think, is maybe an aspirational statement that's designed to help people that at least right now feel good. Um, but the market is driven by emotion. You can't say otherwise. President Trump would not be able to change the market with one tweet if it wasn't driven by emotion. So that feel good factor, it resonates. It excites well, people. I might put the I might put a finer point on it and and, and say that uh, you know the the emotions are, are are fear and greed at least when it comes to Wall Street you know I mean good point. and and you know I, I'm that I didn't make that up but uh, the the point being is is uh, is that those are the the the, the animal spirits of, of the free market you know once people realize if they if they see a tweet from the president that says that gives them the that's kind of the tip of the iceberg underneath that is less regulation, more freedom, greater markets, higher wages, more demand, you know. Libertarians, me. <laughs> well, yeah, or, or just pro-business, you know, there, there's, there's, there are, there's some, there's some pro-business Democrats too. Um, but the, some of the signs that we're seeing just anecdotally, I think are, are really, um, really interesting to see. So let's, let's rewind, let's say uh, six to eight weeks. And we were running some campaigns for clients, and uh, I'm talking about email campaigns, so digital marketing, and and, okay. and, and so going back to modeling, everything we do uh, relies on data and relies on information. And so, you know, the the three key metrics that we look at when we look at email marketing campaigns are open rate. You know, did people open it? Um, did they click through to the call to action? And um, did or did they did they unsubscribe? Um, so we saw, you know, cause right, that's the worst. The worst is if they unsubscribe because then they'll never talk. They, they're, they're saying, I don't want to talk to you. Exactly. Um, and word of mouth is the biggest is it doesn't matter what anyone says. Word of mouth is the primary tool everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that, that the mouth, you know, often turns into an email. You know, if, if you, <laughs> if you forward that email to someone that says, Hey, I think you should take a look at this. I mean, that's kind of an implicit endorsement of, yes. of that of that offering. So what we're seeing is um, after with 
in the in the three the four weeks following the stay in place orders, we saw a big degradation in in those three metrics. We saw open rates fall by half. We saw click click through click to open rates fall, you know, half again. And and we not only did we see a, the unsubscribe rate go up, we actually some of our clients got nasty emails from people saying, "How dare you, uh, you know, promote your product when we're busy here." Worrying about our jobs, completely. Are you serious? That was the response. Completely understandable, though, in in the environment. Do you think so? I know everyone's worrying about their jobs, but uh, it, when you stop, you die. You know, I know there's a better saying for it, but when you when you agree to quit, <laughs> you die. There's no question about that. Yeah, you know, we obviously we didn't expect those kind of reactions because if we did, we probably would have not run the campaign. Um, but you know, that we, we kind of went forward with, with what you were talking about with that, with that ethic and saying, look, you know, um, we, we, we have an obligation to clients and businesses have an obligation to their investors and their employees. And so, you know, being an essential business, uh, we're trying to show you ways that you can reduce your operating expenses. We're showing you ways that you can be more productive. We're trying to introduce you to ways that can help you adapt quicker to the new realities of the, of the oil and gas market. But what was interesting though, is that once that client called back the person who had sent them the nasty note, they actually had a very good conversation. The person resubscribed and, and it was a, a overall a positive experience. Let's just put it this way. Emotions and anxiety were high. I mean, people were now, they're at home and, and, and we're humans, right? I mean, my kids have le left the nest for the most part, but, um, you know, people were now dealing with, they had to be teachers, you know, all of a sudden. And, you know, try to teach, you know, uh, fractions. <laughs> I, I know you're. That's why we have iPhones. Right. Uh, yeah, I know, I know you're an engineer and you're always right, but you know, when I can't derive shit at this point. I'm sorry, like not to put it vulgarly, but like, <laughs> I I'm so far out of that daily, you know, math game for all the basics. You you build your calculators, you forget about it. You have to go reteach yourself. I totally yeah. understand the stress. So very stressful, you know, some people were losing, you know, they probably had friends and family who were losing their jobs. Um, you know, quick antidote, my sister-in-law lost her mother and she couldn't go to her funeral, you know, and it was, it was tough. And so, so I, I guess the point being is that, you know, it was a different world, but now when we look at email marketing metrics, it's, it's, it's off the charts. I mean, I'm running a campaign today for a client. Uh, we're seeing open rates like approaching 50 percent that that's huge so enthusiasm uh, is coming back i don't know if it's if it's if it's a combination of enthusiasm or i'm tired of focusing on on fractions you know teaching my kids or or um hey you know i i uh, you know we the, the we've things have stabilized oil markets have stabilized activity has stabilized um, and elections coming up. We also work with some, you know, with some political uh, groups. And, and so, you know, I think it's the case that um, let's, let's start, let's start getting back to business. And so we're starting to see signs anecdotally in some of the campaigns that we're running for clients. Um, and, and we also see a distinction, you know, con campaigns that, that focus on content that's, in that's valuable and informative are doing fantastic.
Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, there. If you show someone a case study on on how they can solve a problem, um, like reduce oil field emissions or um, you know reduce per unit lease operating expense, they're all over it because frankly, that's 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 the name of the game today. You know, and as we as we go through the business cycle, you know, the energy business cycle especially. You know, different value propositions take on more importance at different points in the cycle. And right now, you know, the number one value proposition is how can you reduce my per unit lease operating expense? Absolutely. That's, I mean, you know, as 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 a, as, as commodity uh, as producers of a commodity, we don't get to set our own price. Although, you know, another trend that public companies especially have to deal with. Are, um, are, are the rise of uh, ESG criteria among institutional investors. So is that still a thing right now? Because I know we need it, but it is such a controversial subject within the oil and gas sector because we're allowing outside forces to set metrics on us. And we have already been burned by the funny money. And we're seeing sort of the evolution of the private equity groups, because we we understand that the old model, it was great at first, but it almost generated a true Ponzi scheme of oil. And you can't have a, you have to go back to balanced books. You can't have an exit strategy be your business plan. So the rise of ESG, is it, is it going to burn us or is it going to save us? Um. I don't know. You know, it's too early to, to say, but what, what we do know is that it's a factor. In fact, the, the E in ESG, as one of our client CEOs tells me, is, is probably the most important right now. And I tend to agree. Um, well, it is because we have activists and negative actors and, you know, negative players who are trying to capitalize on uh, global black swan events for a narrative. You know, when we, uh, it, but there's, there is some science behind it. And, and I, I think it's important for the industry to recognize it. And, and there's a dichotomy in the industry um, as well that's emerged over the past six months. And, and, and it, you can really see the division. There's almost, there's almost two divisions. There's the U.S. industry and then there's the rest of the world. Yeah. So, yeah. so the rest, <laughs> so, so the rest of the world called on the ESG much faster than we did. You know, the concept of having um, social license to operate and so forth. I mean, that's been very popular for a long time um, in Canada and in Europe. And, 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 and their oil markets are doing great. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> a lot of that has to do with their asset quality, right? Um, and you know, yeah, and, and, and the fact that, you know, they're, you know the, the, the government um, is, the, is, the, is the sole owner of, of the uh, of the resource, so you know if if your royalty, if your less if your lessor tells you that you have to do different things, then you have to do those things. Um, here in the U.S., it's a little different, but we, in the U.S. Uh, market, we see a, a definite dichotomy between the big producers, the l- larger integrated independents and majors, and some of the smaller independents. And um, we've seen that as as companies like Oxy. Um, um, Shell, I know they're not U.S., but they do have U.S. operations. Uh, Devon, Simerex uh, here based in Denver. All these companies and more have announced targets to uh, reduce methane intensity. So, so they have, and they're tying and, and, and routine flaring. So 
So they have announced that they're that they're setting targets to reduce these 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 things, these methane emissions and and um, and flaring, and they're tying it to executive compensation. So it's not. I think it's a fair thing to do. Yeah, I. I, I it's a little I collateral behind the message. I, I agree, and 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 I think it's uh it's it's a step. Now you've got others who do not see it that way, who who are resisting the change. Um, and if you're a private company, I think it's a lot easier for you to resist uh, making changes to to your to your compensation policies and your ESG policies. But at the end of the day, if you're um, owned, uh, you know, 60 to 60 percent plus by institutions, then you really have to. Sorry, but it's kind of free market. You got to listen to your shareholders. Yeah, and, I think it also goes back to there is an economic uh commitment behind a lot of these changes. So people want to invest in what works and not what just looks good. And I think, you know, things like methane emissions, flaring, saltwater disposal, just across the board, uh, we want to get better. And as an industry, we we have proven that we get better um, every decade, every year, every other day. And, uh, you know, when there's questions and data that is sending a message that's not necessarily the truth because there are too many, you know, risk variables associated with the analysis. I understand the hesitancy to commit to the financial side of that. If you're going to have to do it to answer to your shareholders, you want to make sure it works. You want to make sure it's worth your time, your money and your investment. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a, that's a really good point. And, and it reminds me of uh, some of the, so we work with, with a lot of small, to medium-sized energy tech companies, and, and some of them might only be two people. You know, it's a two-person startup, or or it could be you know a private equity-backed um, company with with you know a hundred million dollars in sales and, and many employees. And 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 it's interesting that you know how do you get from that two-person startup to 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 the successful, growing um, you know uh, energy tech company or any tech company for that matter? Uh, and and it's it's. I remember I went to a um, um, energy tech networking event last year, and very good events, by the way. They're they're great, you know, and and uh, what and, and because people will tell you the the unvarnished truth, and and you know when you get them on a panel, um, you know it's funny. You get people on a microphone and they'll talk like a canary, you know. Um, oh, I'm aware. <laughs> but, but but the point being is that they had they had one of the um, technology screeners uh, from from one of the large EMP companies with the headquarters here in Denver, and he said he made a really good point about technology and trying to trying to figure out what works. And his point was, you know, we we operate let's say ten thousand wells, and if we try technology on on let's say a hundred wells. Uh, we don't know really statistically if we've hit and it works. We don't know if we got like the only hundred wells that it's going to work on, or if or 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 if it's going to work even better on others. So his attitude and his policy was: we want to we want to deploy new technologies very quickly. We want to fail fast. We want to learn quick, and then we want to adopt the best practice. Now that's a big company, right? And, and they can afford to take risk. And, and there are companies, and we know who they are, uh, who are the early adopters. And so if you're a small to medium-sized business and, you're, and you've got a great innovative technology-based solution for some 
oil field problem. We can tell you who those key early adopters are, and those are the ones you want to target first, mm -hmm. um, especially if your value proposition relates to ESG or if it relates to something um, like uh, you know production optimization or artificial intelligence. I mean, some companies just naturally have a cultural predisposition to adopting technology. So let's say you get a couple of customers and you say, wow, that's great. You know, I'm off to the races and then nothing. <laughs> and, and you get two or three customers and you think you got a real business. And then no, all of a sudden, you know, your, your email marketing campaigns are, are still showing that they're okay. Um, you know, people are showing up to your webcast, your podcast, but no one's making the decision. No one's making, you know, no one's buying. You still have to remember that those early adopters represent a very small part of the market. And so, you know, as you, as you, in, in most of the oil and gas business, and this is not unique to oil and gas by any stretch of the imagination, the majority of the market is filled with risk averse decision makers, right? I mean, Nobody, and when you, when you start to look at most of the rest of the market, they don't want to buy anything that might risk their career or might risk their, um, their, their lease, lease operating expense, you know, per unit. So you got to prove to them by being a market, market focused company, by focusing on what you do well and, and building the reputation with those early adopters, that's, what's going to help you bridge the gap to, to the mainstream market. Um, so I, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of where I wanted to take it. Yeah, no, I completely understand. I do want to pivot back, though, since you are a modeler, you are seeing what's happening in market from adoption to uh, discussion and then non-adoption. And that actually leads me into a very good thing that we as a whole need to be, as a society, need to be addressing. And that is when data is presented to us in a raw and unbiased format or hell, even in a biased format, how does the public consume that? How do we get better with public consumption? I know you have a model to show us uh, on here, but you know we need to present data in a way that although there is emotion behind data, the black and white is what is ultimately the end point of the discussion. So what are your yeah. thoughts on that? What, what sort of are you seeing with adoption of, uh, you know, the, the numbers really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing, nothing builds trust better than transparency. And I, and I think if you're transparent with your assumptions, with your, with your model and you're, you're, you're very open about, uh, about, you know, what, what, what the assumptions are behind it and how you're coming up with a particular value proposition, then you're more likely to, to, to generate trust with the public and also, with with the market, if you're if you're a company selling uh, a solution to to an oil and gas producer or to another to another manufacturer or something like that, so well, even in the medical field, we're seeing it was just completely we we generated chaos instead of strategy. Yeah, and and, and I think a good example of of that, um, let's say, modeling chaos was uh, you know the, the the Imperial College model that the UK used basically to lock down. Um, you know, London and in that country, you know, I mean, they were predicting, um, I, I, I think I had some notes here um, where, uh, let's see. Yeah, it was, they were predicting something like uh, 
50,000 deaths in, in the UK and 40,000 40, COVID deaths by May 1st in, in Sweden. Um, Did that happening? Uh, you know, it, no. Uh, actually, as of, as, of, uh, as of a few weeks ago, Sweden had experienced uh, just over 2,800 uh, deaths. And, and that's, that's, that's not something to be proud of or happy about. Nothing like that. Um, but, but that's a, that's a, yeah, but that's a big difference from 40,000. And so, you know, after further scrutiny, even the people who, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the professor who put the model together, you know, after other, after other peers looked at it, you know, it, it turned out that, you know, this, that it was wildly inaccurate. And actually he had the, re actually he resigned because, um, he, he got caught with his girlfriend because he, um, wasn't oh, following. That's him. right. The one with the girlfriend that walked behind him. Yeah, and well, that explains why his model was wrong. So not only was the model, not only was his model wrong, but he also failed to uh, to live up to his own uh, social distancing uh, guidelines. But you know, there you go. Oops. So we've all been on a socially distanced date. Come on, that's why Zoom got so many hits. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So what do, you, what do you have to show us? So, you know, one of the things that we do, again, I, I mentioned earlier is that, you know, we try to help our clients uh, quantify their value proposition. And, and so we take a very, uh, we try to take it to a data-driven approach, a quantitative approach to marketing when we can. Now, this is different uh, because then can the consumer marketing. So consumer marketing, it, you know, it's more, I mean, we're not trying to reach an audience of 5 million uh, joggers to sell our running shoes to, right? I mean, if, if that relies on making sure you get the message right, you got the imagery right, you're, you're, you're trying to portray your customer, you're trying to get them to see themselves in your advertising. So there's a lot of, it's, it's a different type of marketing as opposed to B2B marketing where it's, um, it's very much focused on, on um, you know, how, how are you going to impact my business results? And so one of the things we do, let's see, I'm going to share the screen here and right. we'll see if this works. As soon as it pops up, I will share it. There it is. All right. So this is, uh, I'm almost embarrassed to show this because it's so simple. Because <laughs> cause when, you, when you talk about models, you're thinking, oh, I'm expecting some kind of whiz bang, you know, super spreadsheet with 16 or 50 different worksheets and there's different programming and, 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 you know, we're using multiple formulas and, and so forth. And, and that's true. But I will say this from experience is that it, the 80, 20 rule applies to modeling. Um, typically, you know, when I was building strategic planning models for a big food manufacturer, uh, you know, it, it was like, you could spend 40 hours putting that model together and it was about as good as it was going to get, you know, <laughs> You can you could put in another eighty, or you know, trying to get your deferred tax account, you know, item shit line item just right by building, you know, six different spreadsheets behind it to encounter every situation that you might you might spend a hundred hours on that. But at the end of the day, it it's a more complex model, but it's not a better model, and it didn't improve the accuracy of it. So sometimes in a in a dynamic market in, where there's a lot of variables that you can't incorporate into your model or at least can incorporate accurately. Sometimes simple is best. So simple is always best. <laughs> and 
And I, t I, 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 I respect your comment because you are an engineer and you do a lot of modeling. I know. So this you is make anything look amazing. <laughs> that's right. So real, real. I mean, just you know, boiling it down. What are we trying to? What are we trying to model? So what we're really trying to do is say, okay, if you're, if you have a value proposition that's going to sell, that's going to resonate, especially at this point in the cycle, it's got to be linked to a key performance indicator, some kind of KPI that's driving the business. Um, in, in 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 oil and gas, there's there's a couple that come to mind that are common. You know, one is going to be uptime. You know, another might be. Um, you know, EUR, you know, and end ultimate recoveries, but you gotta, you gotta, you know, pick, you gotta, if you, you gotta find a way, um, and ideally you started with a way to identify how your, how your solution can impact those problems. If it doesn't impact those KPIs, chances are you have a nice to have. And yeah. if you, and if you have a nice to have, it ain't worth having for many people. And it's going to be a very difficult road to hope. So, um, so what we try to do is, is work with our clients to figure out how, how does your solution impact a KPI, um, especially when it comes to the EMP market. And, and, you know, one of those is, so this is a very easy, simple model that just based, it's based on uptime. And so here we've, we've modeled this out 10 years. We've started with, um, with, uh, 700 barrels per day for this particular production pad. And it declines at 10% a year. I know as an engineer, you're cringing. There's no B factor. There's no N factor. You know, you know, if we were, this, would, yes. this, this would not pass muster on the reserves report. We know. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to get back to that in just a second. So then we're, we're modeling out annual production here on this line. And then we're saying, okay, so if you have 85% uptime and we're putting in our, our, um, our commodity price assumption, our wellhead price assumption, our LOE and SGNA per barrel of oil assumption. You know, you could flip this to be MCFE if you want, obviously. And then we're modeling out those cash flows to say, okay, um, if we if we discount them at uh, at ten percent, you know, what's our what's our net present value? And in this case, it's fifteen and a half million dollars. So super simple. But here's the cool thing about this is that if if you're if you're uh, um, energy tech. If you're if you're selling something and 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 they believe and you can prove that your solution impacts uptime, now you know everything else falls into place. Now you can have a conversation with somebody and you can talk about these these assumptions. And now it's no longer about why my technology is so whiz bang cool, which nobody cares about. Now you're talking about you know how you're actually going to impact the results. And, 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 you know, if you're talking to another uh, engineer or production superintendent or somebody like that, they can say, well, Hmm, you know, that's the wrong production. Let me, I'll, I'll give you the numbers to use. Yeah. Now you've got them engaged. Now you're having a discussion that's based on developing a vision of how your solution is going to help them. So in step two, we say, all right, what's, you know, where do we go from here? So I, I've, I've gone, I made some, um, um, I made this absurdly good, uh, you know, to, 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 to just make a point with modeling, right? So proof that, you know, uh, you can model, you can make a model look and feel like anything you want it to look like. But, but, if, but if you're engaging with your customer and they're giving you actual data and they believe in your assumptions, 
and they're having an impact on how this model is produced, then they're going to buy into it more. And, and I think that goes really with any modeling. If you're open with the public, if you, if you educate them and help them understand why you're making policy decisions and, and when you're going to change your model, that's the key, right? So That's a big key. Because models are typically very linear and, and they fit a point in time. Um, and so if, if, if you really get into the strategy of, and here's where the nerd in me starts to come out, you know, you start to get into probabilistic scenarios and things like that, which is cool, but we don't have time for that. So, so in this case, you know, let's say the solution um, increased or uptime by 95%. We take that, in, but what we had to do is we had to increase operating costs by 50 cents a barrel. Um, so, you know, there, there is no free lunch, you know, there, there's a cost, there is a benefit. The key is, is the, do, do, does, do the costs and the benefits outweigh each other? And if we look down here, you know, we, we've, we've increased the, the PV10 value of this particular production pad uh, by $1.25 million. And so, you know, that, that also begs the question of how much is, how much is enough? You know, I think, uh, if you can't prove a value proposition these days above 20%, there's no point. You're just recreating existing technology without, you know, without any sort of unique factor or unique sauce that makes you more profitable or more usable and consumable than your predecessors. Yeah. I, it, and, and, and that's the other thing too. You know, that, that goes along with the with the must have. So if you can prove a scenario like this that can pr prove and uh, that can demonstrate an economic benefit to the to the customer, you are already more than halfway down the road. In fact, you're not going to have to sell anymore. They're going to want to buy it. They're going to pull you. They're going to pull you through their buying process. You don't have to push anymore. And so that's that's if you can do this, that's that's it become a very powerful tool for um, building trust through your models with the client so that so that you can you can get them basically to say yeah I, I need this when can you start but there's always that question on the buying team there's always going to be somebody who asks what needs to change what do I got to do what do I got to do to get that I, I understand I have to I have to pay 50 cents per barrel um, to to achieve the benefits and the benefits are enough let's say it's at least 20 percent. It has to be because whether because there's always a cost to change. That cost could be financial. That cost could be organizational. That cost could be cultural. But there's yeah. always there's always some pain involved in adopting something new. Now it could be the pain of adoption could be something very trivial, such as oh, I'm just going to download an app on my iPhone. You know, no problem. That pain's still pretty low. Uh, but it may be well. No, you're going to have to shut in your wells for a week you know, while we go out there and install things, or, you know, there's, there's a possibility that, you know, production might not come back to its, to its, to its pre pre-installation uh, levels for a while, um, you know, or, or now, now I gotta, I gotta reassign people to different jobs. The, the more friction there is in terms of adopting your solution, the more Delta, i.e. positive gain, you've got to offer the, the market. And so that's, that's where, um, unfortunately, you know, working over the years, we've had the pleasure of working with a lot of different management teams, lots of different technologies. And, um, you know, where they inevitably, 
I hate to say fail, but you know, where they inevitably run into big challenges is that if, you know, for example, this one, one company we were working with many years ago, um, you know, they, their payback was, was longer than 12 months and, you know, they weren't going to get the major benefit to the solution for another three years. That's it is what it is. That's not, profit. I mean, that's not, you know, it, it's not, add value. that's not it, a proposition for value. No, no, it's not. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, most of the market said, you know, I could just do a workover on an old well and get more return right now than than by adopting this solution where I'm going to have to change everything. And so sometimes just having a cool whiz bang technology just isn't enough. And, and I know we all know that. And I know we all feel very passionate about our technology that we've developed. Um, but at the end of the day, you got to look at it. You got to do the numbers. You got to put the models together and, and be real honest with with yourself and with your customers. Well, James, I know we are wrapping up, but that was actually a very good segue. So now that we've gone through the importance of the models, we've looked at some stats, we are still on that pivot. And to your point, you have to be able to prove value with the pivot. Yeah, put your hat back on. So, <laughs> You're out. So this is the sign. No, I'm, I mean, it's kind of funny, but but this is a sign I will be looking for. I mean, baseball, baseball when we're back, but if, so just yeah. for a final question, lookbacks, leverage, and the pivots that companies, that companies, I don't care if you're oil and gas or you're a restaurant down the street, what do we need to start looking at from what we've learned thus far in order to move forward? What is that number that's unbiased, honest, and, you know, gives us the, the, the leverage we need for a successful pivot? Yeah, I think you're going to have to look at two things. Number one, uh, look at weekly unemployment, first-time unemployment claims. Um, they've been they've been trending down, and when they start to to get closer to the pre-COVID um, uh, levels, you know, once they start to get below a million, um, then I think you're going to start to realize that, that 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 maybe the worst of the bloodletting in the labor market is is starting to come to an end. Um, then on the plus side. Again, we're talking about macroeconomics because right now everything is macroeconomic. Um, you know, the, uh, real, oh, real quick in the oil markets, and I think we're seeing it. We're seeing, um, we're starting to see the storage additions to oil storage um, decline. Um, we've seen that decline weekly over the past four weeks. And so that's what's given the oil markets a little bit of comfort that, you know, we're not going to see oil cresting over the tops of storage tanks at, at Cushing and, and other places, you know, you know, we, we, we've, I think we've, we've come to the conclusion that perhaps the worst is behind us. We'll see with that data, but that's a key. That's I, I a agree. Key that's a little premature. I think it could come back yeah. real fast. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a real key metric that, that the oil business really needs to focus on and especially in North America. And the third is going to be ultimately employment. You know, are we going to see, are we going to see people going back to work? Because here's the issue, and, and you and I have kind of talked about this before. Employers don't hire thinking that they might get some demand. You know, they hire when they experience the demand. And so, you know, if you're a restaurant owner or, or um, you know, a service company, a, a marketing consulting company, things like that, you don't hire until you have demand for, for the workers. And so, you know, I, I think it would be really interesting to see um, you know, see what what data coming out of the restaurant association looks like. You know, are we are we seeing people coming 
coming back? Are we seeing customers come back? Are we seeing those if they're if they're open at fifty percent capacity? Are are they filling those seats? So I can tell you anecdotally that my wife and I, you know, been out to dinner uh, twice in the past week. Uh, once the once the restrictions were brought, were offered, we we ate a lot. So we I, I put on the COVID fifteen. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> or quarantine fifteen, however you want to call it. Quarantine fifteen, yeah, that's a good one. So so I'm working to get down to my fighting weight again, but you know, but the point being is that you know. Are we seeing people going back to work? Um, you know, we, we tip generously. Are we seeing people, um, you know, start to reopen the restaurants? Are the people who, who who lost their businesses, are they able to start again or are they able to find work somewhere else? And and we hope that they can. You know, it's a very, very difficult time. I don't think we're um, anywhere near complete with this. And we got to remember, we still got six months of 2020 to get through before we get to 2021. 2021's gotta be better, but all right. Well, James, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was an awesome discussion. Again, everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. This was the 710 Oilfield News, which is a segment of the Food Audacity podcast. If you have any more questions for James, I suggest you check out Prism Group. Uh, you can find them online, LinkedIn. Uh, what's the email address again? Or not the email, the website address. Oh, uh, the website address. So we, we try to put out a blog post that talks about topics like this um, yeah. every every couple of weeks, maybe every week. Uh, we are at number one, the numeral one, prismgroup.com. Check us out. Thank you. One, prismgroup.com. All right, James, thank you so much. You have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you, Catherine. brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us by Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.